uh, yeah, I mean, we need more content, more Alan Webster. Yeah, we always need more Alan Webster. It's the dream team. I mean, you have us three. It's a, it's a really good team. I really like yeah. that uh, we can't see Aiden, but he just types things that just pop up on the screen. Like Matt the Terrible, MTT. That's a nice acronym. Do you think it'll catch on? Anywhere? Yeah, I like it. <laughs> Anytime you have an acronym, an acronym, just throw, just throw it up there. It's, it'll, it'll fit in somehow. All right, so let's let's do this intro. So, I'm joined by Ben Drozdoff and Alan Webster. Um, Aiden Hanlon is his name, but we just call him Alan Webster because they look alike and probably have the same pitching profile. And uh, this is. Yep. This is a podcast for Preaching Sense, but we're going to talk baseball, and we're going to talk some daily fantasy baseball. And uh, I'll start with this. So I've been doing a daily baseball podcast with my friend Greg Ehrenberg for this site, DFS Sports Gods. And uh, basically, we just talk every night about the upcoming day and uh, who the best value plays are, who the pitchers are to use. And we'll often say things like, this guy is upside, this guy has home run potential, stolen base potential, strikeout potential. Um, But I just kind of want to talk more generally about what upside means, because it's kind of just, it's just kind of a word that people throw in a lot. And you could say like, Logan Morrison has upside, or Aaron Judge has upside, but that, those things, that's not going to mean the same thing for those two players. I mean, both of them hit home runs, but they don't really have much else in common. Um... I don't know. So, well, I, whichever one of you wants to jump in, just like when you're talking about upside of players, what does that mean? I mean, I think in the context of daily fantasy sports, it's just the wideness of the distribution of outcomes. Um, I mean, if you look at, you can look at two players. I know we've talked about this on the podcast before who have like expected seven points. Um, one could come from a distribution where it's pretty narrow and the, you know, 90% of the outcomes are between like six and eight. And then you can have one with a much larger standard deviation where you can get, you know, a much higher percentage chance of having like 10 or above. So to me, that's what it is. It's just like the wideness of the distribution. I guess we're just really a heuristic, just what the standard deviation is. So I guess I have two major concerns with – it's not with that line of thinking, but just two general concerns. So yes, obviously you want to know the distribution, but the first concern is how do you know that other than just saying – just taking the player's past data and um, looking at, okay, this guy gets six points this often, seven points this often, eight points this often. Because um, then you also have to adjust, to adjust for the pitcher, which makes it more complicated. But even if you didn't um, – Using past data, you're often dealing with sample sizes of young players, and the the sample sizes are pretty small. But even if you figure out what that distribution is, does it make sense to build daily fantasy lineups where you have 10 players and all of them just have really, really high variance? Or do you want something like where you have seven stable guys and three guys for high variance? Because the goal when you're playing, and I guess we'll talk specifically about tournaments where the top 20% usually makes money, but the top 1% is going to get a much larger share of the prize pool than the top 10%. It's like it's structured like a poker tournament. So if you come in first, obviously, that's way more beneficial than coming in 100th. But 
is is the goal just to play for first every time and just use players with crazy variants, or is some sort of mix where you have some high variance guys and then some stable guys? Is that the way to go? And that's a question that I keep asking myself, and I I don't really ask it to other people because no one really cares. Um, but I I don't know how to answer that, so I don't know. I mean, Aiden I, plays I DFS, so yeah. What 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 do you do? Uh, well. My current strategy is a dumb strategy, but um, I just play for fun while I'm bored at work. But uh, I mean, I, I don't think there's a correct answer to your question. I think there's a couple different ways you can go based on how you're trying to play or what you're trying to do. I mean, if you're trying to just win, you know, top one percent and just go crazy one day, and you don't really care if you put a hundred bucks in and lose all of it, then sure, go for the super high volatility lineup in every spot. But, I mean, if you're trying to make it consistent enough winning, I mean, one of the strategies I always liked for football was get a core of, like, four or five people that you're pretty confident will have, at the very least, decent days with some upside and then just fill out their roster with the volatile guys and stick with the four to five core guys for all of your lineups but kind of just change out the, the extra guys for each different lineup so that all you know all you need is as long as your court as well if you get four or five of the other guys who have a good day in that one specific lineup is going to make up for all the others and help you have a good a good day of course that was my usual strategy for football which is obviously a little bit different than baseball um but that was just my general line of thinking but i think you could easily justify other other practices it's just kind of what your goals are and what you're trying to do with your with your daily lineups and yeah. Also, I mean, just as viable to just try to go for head-to-head and 50-50 matchups every day, in which case, obviously, you don't want as much volatility and you're not chasing those guys who could give you a four-dinger day or they could strike out five times. So I'm generally very against playing anything besides the the tournaments for baseball because there's so much variance in the sport. Like for basketball – you can reliably expect most of your players to get around their mean production. So if you just have guys that are good value for their prices, you probably are going to do well in something like a 50-50 where you just have to beat half the field or a double up or whatever. Um, the cash games is what they're usually referred to as. Um, but in baseball, I just don't think that makes any sense to do because you can't really expect any consistency from any players aside from the pitchers. Like, most pitchers will put up positive points for the most part, but you could easily have a bunch of hitters who put up zero, even in really good matchups, just because they only get three or four chances, maybe five, to get a hit. And even if they're not getting unlucky, it just might be a bad day. So, yeah, just to, I'll just say that. I think playing anything besides tournaments where you're going for upside in baseball just doesn't make sense to me. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that? It, it still comes down to... I mean, if you're doing baseball daily fantasy, it's going to be the same thing for all. That you're going to need to play enough for everything to even out, and just one one game or one slate is there's going to be so much randomness that anything can happen, and even the smartest plays won't work half the time. But I mean, if you're making, I I still don't think there's some level where making cash games is still it's still fine in baseball if you're, if you're playing enough games that it's going to even out. There, I mean, there's so many stupid people on the websites that 
especially if you use like Yahoo that are just making terrible lineups every day. And in the long run, they'll weed themselves out, and then it's pretty much 50% of the pool wins and 20% is eliminating themselves on most days because they just pick terrible left-handed hitters against good left-handed pitchers routinely, just stuff like that. But obviously, baseball's the most volatile volatile of the daily fantasy sports, so it's the least friendly towards cash lamps, but I think there's still some value there. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, anytime you can play against people who are making terrible lineups, it's good. So if that happens to be in, in cash games, then fine. Yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. But I definitely see people a lot of the time using the stacking strategy in 50-50s, which just, that's that's complete nonsense. Because the idea of stacking is that the players' numbers in baseball are correlated. You know, one guy's on second, the other guy hits a single. They both get points because one guy gets a run, the other gets an RBI. Um Using that, going for that upside in in cash in a fifty fifty or something is just is just dumb. So I people definitely shouldn't be doing that. But yeah, I guess I see your point. Generally, when you can play lineup, when you can play slates where you only have to beat half the field, and a good portion of that just has no idea what they're doing, then that works. And in the long yeah, run, it I, does even out. You just have to be patient. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the big thing. Um, and then I really like when if there's some really good value plays at pitcher, and then you can just have you know. All the best hitters. I think that's generally one is better, but yeah. So even in those cases, I still like the tournament. So I'll give an example from a few days ago. So Chris Sale was facing the Twins and was fairly cheap relative to what he usually is. And then Jeff Samarja was facing the Rockies at home and he was really cheap. And Samarja has some awesome peripherals this year and the Rockies are just terrible. And everyone loves the Rockies, but I, I really don't like that team. I think they're actually now last in WRC plus in baseball. They're like a 79 or an 80, um, but they play in course, so people think they're good. It's just it's just the best thing ever to target the Rockies, um, players playing against them. They're just, they're, they're just terrible. Um, but when you I think when you have two pitchers like that, you just use them in every lineup, and then you just stack a few different offenses, and then if any of those offenses does well, that's probably going to be really profitable. But yeah, yeah, I I, yeah. I, I, I could see your point where that it's safe to just you know take the guaranteed money because yeah there there was almost no way that Sale and Samarja were going to have really bad games uh, home Twins and home Rockies that's like two of the easiest possible matchups for pretty good strikeout pitchers um, but what no it's three dingers yeah which I mean I, Chris Jimenez actually hit the only dinger for the Twins that night that was hey uh, they're their fifth best, fifth best relief pitcher. He might be their first best reliever. They have a they have the worst bullpen ever. I think. Uh, by the way, the Rockies are tied for worst WRC plus with the Giants and the Padres. Ooh, it's yeah. A division. It's funny that people think it's a great matchup to face the Padres, and then it's a terrible matchup to face the Rockies because the Rockies are bad. I don't know, Ben. Ben, what are your thoughts on the Rockies? So I'm glad you asked. I was actually <laughs> just uh, about to chime in. My. Number one thought on the Rockies for the context of this conversation is that there's been a decent amount of research uh, publicly on the course field effect and how it affects the way hitters, the Rockies hitters hit on the road. And the conclusion was basically that because the pitches travel differently at the high elevations of course field, the Rockies hitters actually hit worse on the road than you would expect like their true talent levels to be on the road if they were playing in a different home stadium. Um, so 
that to me would make me much more likely to pick any pitcher who's facing the Rockies at home um, and that much less likely to face in the cores, obviously. But um, I think that's kind of an interesting like wrinkle to this. Yeah, there's something interesting I've noticed this year, too, with the Rockies pitchers. So, yeah, it does make sense that the Rockies hitters would get used to how the ball travels at cores and then have a more sizable negative adjustment on the road than you'd expect. But um, I don't know if it's true for all the Rockies pitchers. I know it's true for Kyle Freeland. So Freeland's given up twice as many. Uh, I think he's given up seven road homers and three home homers, which is insane for a Rockies pitcher. And he has just about the same number of innings. Uh, I think he's like 45 or 50 innings, both home and road. And his strikeout and Freeland strikeout and walk numbers on the road are like four Ks per nine and four walks per nine. And it's like a seven to three ratio in cores. Um, I think Antonio Senzatella sort of has the same profile. And um, I think Jeff Hoffman has been better at home too, although I'm not sure if that one's true. But it would make sense too that the Rockies pitchers would sort of have it figured out how their ball moves at home because they're playing there all the time. So even though the park is sort of hurting their breaking pitches, they would have in some way taken advantage of that and maybe the hitter's expecting the ball to move in a certain way, but it doesn't, and the Rockies pitchers have maneuvered that well. Because Colorado's pitching on the road, at least those few guys, has actually been worse. Um, So, yeah, it'd be strange to say Kyle Freeland is worse in San Francisco than he is in Colorado, but I actually sort of think that's the case. Is is that even remotely possible, or am I just crazy? I, I think it makes... No, I mean, I think it makes sense. There was actually recently an article, uh, either this week or this last week, uh, featuring like an interview with Jake McGee, and he was talking about, I guess, like I don't know how much of this is just like him creating a narrative or and how much of it's actually true, um, but it does, to me, hold some water that he got rocked last year because he was used to his fastball rising more. So this year he's starting it even higher and getting the results that he's used to getting. Um, so I could definitely see like a good cerebral, well-informed pitcher would be able to take advantage to an extent of course field. Um, and also I think the Rockies front office is probably doing this as well and are probably looking to target pitchers who's been break in certain ways that are going to be, I guess, less unfavorable in cores. Yeah. One thing I'll say about the Rockies front offense is that they definitely think outside the box. Like I remember Dave Cavern suggesting that the Rockies signed Ian Desmond just for his leadership because he's terrible by any conventional metric. Um, they are, they do put more of an emphasis on defense than any other team or at least most teams. Uh, I don't know. They do some weird stuff. So maybe some of it works and, I guess you, it depends how you, you define working because it works at home and uh, the pitchers, maybe they're worse on the road. I don't know. Or they're just bad pitchers that are getting away with being bad at home. But it's it's definitely a strange thing. Um, Aiden has some messages popping up. He, wa- he wants to ask a trivia question. So let's, uh, let's let Aiden throw his trivia bit out. What you got for us? Right. Uh, I'm going to give the listener 30 seconds here to tell me the difference in FIP, fielding independent pitching, between Edwin Diaz and Chris Jimenez. Oh, we're gonna start the Mariners bashing already. Okay, let's uh, okay. let's just be silent while while the listeners can think about that. <laughs> we need some like, some Jeopardy music for him. All right, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt, Ben, what are your guesses? Wait, this this uh, is a real question. Yes, I, I'll, I'll fathom a guess. I mean, I'm gonna say 
Edwin Diaz is about, I'm not looking. I would say Edwin Diaz is about four and a half and Chris Jimenez is about five. So I'll say, I'll say half a run. Can it really be right. that close? I'll say three quarters of a run. All right. So Chris Jimenez is FIP uh, with zero strikeouts this year is 5.74. <laughs> uh, after today's performance, Edwin Diaz is, is 5.4. Wow. It's a third of a run. Holy yep. crap. What is wrong with Edwin Diaz? Um, he gives up a shit ton of dingers. <laughs> yeah, he gave up a really massive dinger to Aaron Altair last night. That I'm sure just Aiden was just like really just, just it just broke him, right? I luckily was not watching last night, but <laughs> I mean he's got a twenty two point two percent home run per fly ball rate this year. So is he getting unlucky? How do you? Uh, I think that that's a good topic. Uh, uh, it kind of comes back to what we talked about before, and that I don't really think he's that unlucky. Like a lot of Mariners relief pitchers, I think okay. they just throw hard fastballs right down the middle, and they get hit for home runs because, prize, the league is now home run friendly. Well, it's weird that um, I I don't know how much this has held up in recent weeks, but there was an article on Fangraphs in I think it was late April or early May about how the home run surge actually is only affecting the. Um, it's only affecting two thirds of the strike zone. So pitches down the middle, obviously are being hit out more pitches in the lower third are being hit out more, but pitches in the top third of the strike zone actually have the same home run fly ball rate as any other year in recent memory. So it seems like the uppercut swings just are allowing hitters to hit low pitches out more. Um, and then the high pitches, just the uppercut swing doesn't work as well on them. For some reason, yeah. Clayton Kershaw is throwing the ball in the bottom of the zone this year more than he wow. ever has. Which just why is he doing that? He should just throw it, go back to his high fastball, which is probably his best pitch. I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that holds up logically, and it's been true for the entire season. But yeah, just as pitchers are throwing lower, I think hitters are adjusting, and that's how they're changing their swing paths. And you've seen some pitchers publicly say that they're realizing this and they're starting to throw up more, which I, I know the Pirates are all about that this year for most of their pitchers. But uh, so obviously it makes sense if the hitters are trying to swing for balls low on the zone, but they'd be more susceptible to pitches up. Um, Matt, did that article mention anything about like inside versus outside? I don't think it did. I'm sure that information's out there, but I don't think that that was part of it. I would be curious because I know the Pirates also throw inside like a ton, like way more than the rest of the league. Hmm. Yeah, it would make sense that throwing in low and in fastballs is riskier. Like you, you look stupid more often, but for the most part, you're probably going to generate more outs that way than throwing down in a or throwing up in a way. Um, I'm not sure actually, but well, I'll I'll give an MLB the show reference because it just always is relevant. Um, but I'll often throw high changeups in that game because most people never look for that. And every once in a while, the high changeup will get slaughtered for like a 470-foot dinger. And I'll just be like, well, that's really dumb that they did that. But most of the time, they'll just like swing and like dribble the, low, the high changeup because they're not looking for it. And they see the high pitch coming in, and it looks like a fastball. Um, I think Ben and I might have talked about this the last time that he was on, where this yeah, might be the exact did. same point. <laughs> but just doing and doing things differently is definitely that, a big deal. 
that holds up for me and will be the show because I know when I get my brother will throw me high curveballs. I'm pretty sure an accident, but I never swing and I always get called strikes and it always pisses me off. <laughs> I definitely think there's something to being like unpredictable. Um, yeah, I guess the hard part of that is being like, okay, if if I know that the league always more or less throws first pitch fastballs, so I'm always going to throw first pitch changeups. But then, like, you become predictable for throwing first pitch changeups. I don't know. It's it, it's a really hard like thing to figure out. Um, I know we had talked about like the possibilities of having like a truly random um, pitch selection uh, and how effective for years. we need. And I think like one of the restrictions. I think actually, I think Aiden had brought this up. Like, if you throw your changeup as much as your fastball, like your changeup is going to be worse because like the reason your changeup is good is because it's different, not because like it's intrinsically a better pitch um but like accounting for that it would be really interesting to have like a truly random pitch generator in house you're talking about aiden's favorite thing ever actually yeah i'll let aiden weigh in we need one pitcher with really good control of all his pitches so he also has to do it publicly so the hitters know he's got to say that he's going out there and using a random number generator for every pitch where the a coach in the, in the dugout just runs the random number generator, flashes him a sign, and then he throws that pitch, every single pitch. The hitters would not be able to handle it. It would just be completely random. They, they have no idea what's coming. Hitters are – most baseball players are pretty stupid. Let's be honest. They'd probably all fall for the gambler's fallacy. fallacy. They'd be like, well, I've gotten three straight curveballs. There's no way I'm going to get another curveball. This be all sort of like, it's not gambler's fallacy, though. I mean, that's like – there's there's game – theory in that like that i don't know because it's not a random number generator like it's a human being on the mouth like there's clearly some element of game theory involved so i i wouldn't like well yeah that's why i'm saying one. if you went away from that then it wouldn't be a human on the mound it would be yeah a random number generator making those decisions i don't know i guess i don't know i i give baseball players a lot more credit it, the batter would have to I, know, I know that it's a random number generator then then well, yeah, that's what I'm they have to publicly yeah. go out there before the game and say they're gonna do that i feel like the batters still would think all right there's no way this random number generator is going to give me a fourth straight curveball i feel like that would happen once you remove would, the human element so then that would probably just help so if they randomly got another curveball the hitter would have no idea it's coming yeah, because if it's three, if it's black and roulette three times, it it's a hundred percent chance to be red the fourth time. Exactly. <laughs> I guess I would say that the traditional roulette player is less informed than the average baseball player. I, I guess that like, that's I don't fair. Know, I, like why? Why would you? Why would you say that? Why? I mean, I just think like so the baseball players are complete morons. See, but like, how do you know that? I don't know. I guess like that's where I, I would disagree. I mean, I, I think like because they get, were given millions of dollars as seventeen-year-olds and never matured and grew up in an environment. Yeah, but Aiden, think about jocks. the people who play roulette, which has zero value. Those people are pretty stupid, also. <laughs> They're probably more <laughs> yeah, that's stupid. True. Some I baseball players might be are underestimating the I average roulette player. Level of of like, I I just think it takes a level of intellect to continue to improve like nobody when they sign is a 17 18 or even 21 year old is ready for the big leagues there's always and not only after they sign but before that like a lot of iteration on like how do i continue to improve as a baseball player and i think you have to have like 
like you have to be somewhat cerebral to do that. Like you can't like, I don't know. And obviously, yes. Are there going to be people who can get by on like pure talent, but like to, to make like a, I don't know. I, I don't think them being physically talented implies that they are less mentally astute. Um, or at the very least, like prepared. I, I, I think, especially in this day and age of baseball, where the data is really taking over. Yes, you're going to have holdouts, like publicly, who say, like, no, this is not, like, this is not accurate. But a lot of players are have publicly expressed being very open to the data, and not only that, but like eager to find out about it. And like, so I, yes, there will be some players who probably don't subscribe to that, but. Um, I would say they're a lot more of a cerebral group than you would think. Uh, I think you're overestimating the general population, but I disagree with how smart it takes, how smart of a person you need to improve on skills when you're being coached by dozens of people, but that's a whole other argument for another day. Sounds like Aiden's been listening to... um a lot of preaching sense, most specifically our last podcast about how everyone's stupid and everything's probably average. Yeah, I think that, that, that always holds up. I mean, that's how I operate in general, that everyone is stupid. <laughs> it's a good way to get more listeners for the podcast is just to call the <laughs> listeners dumb. But also, hey. I, was trying to find a, I was trying to find a Mark Burley quote to oppose Ben's comments, but I can't find it at the moment. But it's, I mean, even that though, that's not an opposition. Like I know that there are the Jared Weavers out there who are like, I hate yeah, that people shift because they say it works 75% of the time. And then he responds. I think, what about I think that your newsfeed is biased because you tend to read fan graphs much more than you'd read the Chicago White Sox beat writer. Who's giving quotes from dumb players saying, I don't give a shit about stats because, or the old Max Kepler, I'm <laughs> yeah, just going to ground the ball into the ground. That was bad. Uh, Max Kepler is I mean, definitely I mean, dumb. You're right. I do have a biased point of view, but like, I think still just the volume that comes from that, like from that source, it shows that it's not like a population of unintelligent people. Uh, I don't know. I'll disagree, but well, we can we can agree yeah. to disagree. Right. Yeah, I don't think I don't think we're gonna come to an agreement here. You guys don't like each other's points. It's fine. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you both something that is pretty relevant in DFS. I think Ben is gonna be very surprised how relevant this is. Um, but do you think there's any merit to batter versus pitcher matchups, like matchup data from a specific batter against a specific pitcher? And I think that this will lead us to something about types of batters versus types of pitchers which probably has more merit, but just just specifically, like, do you think individual versus individual stats have any validity for any sort of use? As much validity as any other four at-bat sample. Um, <laughs> I mean, okay. that's the crux of the issue. Like, would it be relevant if there was, like, a meaningful sample? Absolutely. Like, if there were four teams in the league so that, like, one hitter has faced one pitcher 45 times, like, yes. But if you did any kind of, like, Bayesian analysis where you, like, added what that hitter has done against that pitcher to the distribution, it's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, I agree with that. Aiden, what, are you going to agree with Ben this time, or are you guys going to be at odds again? What are you I typing agree. for us? People who look at <laughs> hitter, pitcher matchups are stupid. Um, so there's, there's some evidence, I think Tom Tango did this research on 
how batters do better against opposite style pitchers. So fly ball hitters do better against ground ball pitchers and ground ball hitters do better against fly ball pitchers. And I think that the rationale is that it creates line drives when you have those sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. But I think a lot of people look at that and say, or they'll look at that data and say, oh, it's a fly ball pitcher versus a fly ball hitter. I'm going to get extra dingers out of this matchup. So I'm not, I'm not really sure because it would seem like you get more variance when you have two similarly styled players facing each other. But it seems like the overall batting line would improve when you have kind of opposite versus opposite. Yeah, you should, you should get uh, Tom Oliver on here for this. That's what he was all about when he did Daily Fantasy. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. That's where I I think that's actually where I got the idea for this topic from. So thank you, Tom, for mentioning this two years ago. Tom and Billy Bean. (laughs) Billy Bean also looks into that stuff? Yeah, that's what he was all about for that one offseason when he signed Billy Butler. How would Billy Butler work for just one hitter? Would he just Uh, use him as a pinch hitter against fly ball pitchers? He he just – he got a bunch of ground ball hitters because – the division was had a lot of fly ball pitchers. Oh yeah, a lot and of Mike his, Fires and Colin McHugh's in the division, so get a bunch of ground yeah, ball that hitters. Was, that was his rationale for signing a bunch of ground ball hitters, including the great, um, the great. What is it, what's his big country? What's his nickname? I didn't know he had a nickname. Country Country Breakfast. Is that, is that Billy? <laughs> yes, yes. 100%. That's Billy Butler's yeah. nickname, Country Breakfast. <laughs> country Breakfast. He is uh, a big country breakfast. You have to, like not evaluate your life when you like receive the nickname country breakfast. Like yeah. better or worse than the nickname Alan Webster. <laughs> it's it's clearly worse. <laughs> Alan Webster is more of endearment. I mean Alright, second trivia question. Okay, let's uh, hear it. Alan Webster. How many how many runs, positive or negative, was Billy Bean worth in terms of Fangraph's BSR over the course of his career? Billy Butler, or, Billy yeah. Bean's okay. base running, or Billy Butler's base running? Sorry, Billy Billy Butler, okay. Country Breakfast. Tons of runs. Uh, uh, yeah, runs, base running, runs. Hmm. Okay, so I'm gonna guess about negative. Good start. Twelve this season. <laughs> Great start. <laughs> negative twelve a season for what? Ten seasons. Uh, negative 120. Negative. Okay, oh, hold on. Negative one hundred twenty runs, so negative twelve wins from runs. Is that where that's that's what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. I think it, that's a really good guess. Can I just use Ben's guess? I kind of want to predict that. Also. Light it, Matt. Go one above or one below. Uh-huh. Hey, that's the over under. Terrible, terrible value to take the same guess. I'll say one hundred and twenty-one runs. Alrighty, it was eighty-five point two. Oh damn, he's not quite as terrible as we thought. 88.5 wins under replacement like, from the The thing I failed to consider is that there were years where Billy Butler was also an awful hitter and he wasn't on probably base enough didn't to, on base enough to create negative value. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably my omission. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. There's like, um, I'd be curious how his like season or like how his season base running runs correlated to his like WRC plus. <laughs> See <Eight>. how like <laughs> Him not having the opportunity to create negative value. Right, and also just being a bench player who probably got pinch run for any time he got on base. Yeah. Um, Aiden, uh, can you can you give us um, – well, 
I know I know who's better, and I think it's by a large margin, but I, I want to discuss the base running difference between Jose Altuve and Paul Goldschmidt. Are you aware of like how much better and worse those two are than you would probably think? Yeah, Altuve sucks at base running. He's like a neutral base runner despite having, I mean, probably being one of the fastest guys in the league. He just gets thrown out all over the place. Um, and Paul yeah. Goldschmidt is like yeah. the best at going first to third ever, and he's been thrown out on the bases zero times this year. Yeah, Jan Segura is the same way. He's coming into today. He had eight steals and seven caught stealing. <laughs> caught stealing. Should caught not steals. Be, just get a good jump. Like, is it that hard? Uh, apparently. Yeah, I guess it probably is. But Paul Goldschmidt is so good at getting jumps. I think he has the oh, highest wait, base running value of any player. Thing, or do you think it's like an overconfidence thing, or an, not even like overconfidence of the player, but like overconfidence of the coaching staff to be like, "Hey, Malik Smith, you're fast. Go run." You know, like well, you also have to consider, you know, Altuve is like a foot shorter than the average man, so that's just like a foot loss when he's got to slide into second base. So I, maybe he just thinks point. he's six foot five. And hmm, I have never I considered probably, that. Uh, uh, I'm going to go back to my uh, thing here, Ben. I think people are stupid, and the coaches say you can run whenever you want, and then Altuve is like, "Well, I'm fast. I'll go steal here." Right, so it's like an overconfidence problem. Yeah, that, that would be my I, guess. That's kind of what I would guess as well. Like, I don't think it's – I would be inclined to think that it's not really jumps as much as it is, like, not being selective with your opportunities. Um, that's probably also, I know, for example, with Segura, he has a lot of caught ceilings because Scott Service is an idiot and loves to use the hit and run still. Ah, uh, the hit oh, and run. run is a good – Thing that, well, yeah, it's terrible. Not that it's a good thing, but it's a. I, I wouldn't have considered that. That's a good point. What do you also think he about um, the automatic going for the stolen base because it's a three-two count regardless of the number of outs? Like my, the example, I was watching the Blue Jays game the other night. Kendris Morales was up with Justin Smoke on first base and no outs, and they sent Smoke on the three-two pitch. Morales <laughs> swung and missed, and Smoke was out by like twenty feet. <laughs> That's great. And I think the reason they did it, I think the reason they did it is because the prior inning, um, Russell Martin was up with Jose Batista on first, and they didn't send Batista on the three to count, and Martin grounded into a double play. So they're like, this time we got to send the runner. We're just not going to let this happen again. So they ended up with two double plays, and probably two bad decisions because Jose yeah. Batista is probably sort of fast enough where on a strikeout he's going to be able to make it more often than not. So they just they just they, they mismanaged the game horribly. I think it depends a lot on the hitter. If you have someone like Altuve who makes contact a lot, it's not as bad of an idea. But Justin and Smoke shouldn't run ever. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. It's like it's. I mean, yeah, I think it's what Aiden's saying. Like, it's a function of the hitter's swing rate, the hitter's contact rate. I guess the pitcher's zone rate, and then the runner's um, like expected caught stealing percentage given that like there's a throw right um, there probably isn't much calculating you, you could definitely figure out the break-even point but i would imagine that managers are not doing that um yeah i mean they should there's no way that kendris morales and justin smoke are above the break-even point even with kevin gausman yeah. pitching there's yes. just no I way would 100% agree with that. <laughs> well kevin gausman just makes it even worse because he's terrible and you shouldn't run into more else Right. Well, I guess he can get grounders, so the, the fear is like, oh my god, we're going to ground into another double play. 
let's just send smoke so we can have a runner on second when Morales hits the foul ball. If that's if that's how you manage the game, though, you should probably just let the guy strike out on purpose so you don't get into double plays. Because that then at least you can only get one out per at bat if you just let everyone strike out looking every time. Just also, don't just swing; don't you won't get a balls. double play. Yeah, you just hit it in the air. <laughs> yeah, just pull it. Jared Dyson and don't hit ground balls and you're good. Is that true? He just hits it in the air? That probably doesn't even make sense for him. He should hit ground balls. His, his ground ball percentage is down like 20% this year. So he's he's going for the uppercut. He's like one of the fastest guys in the league and he's just hitting pop-ups, I guess. Hey, he's the most valuable player on the Mariners this year. Wow. Is that mostly base running and defense or does his offense have value too? He's got a 91 WRC+. plus. Okay. So he actually could be like a good hitter if he stopped doing that. Mm. I don't know though. I mean, was like he was a bad hitter for like most of his career when he was doing that. Hmm. When he is he hitting, hitting homers though? Like how many dingers does yeah, Jared Dyson he, he get? Well, this is what I've brought up a couple times in our group chat. He has four dingers this year, and I've seen him hit at least three foul dingers. I think the Mariners lead the league in foul dingers. That has to yeah, be true, right? Danny Valencia has like thirty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, he's he's hit four dingers. Uh, he's got a one thirteen ISO, which I guess not is that, that it is, but not that far from his career norms. Probably just because he gets a lot of like triples and. So what's the ninety one WRC plus? Is it BABIP? Is it strikeouts? Is it walks? Like what's the driver? Um, there? Just kind of average everything. I seven seven percent walks. He's hitting 249. Like, his is actually pretty low. Like relative to his career line, like what's comes out? Um, nothing. He's hitting in Safeco, so he gets a big adjustment in WRC plus. Fair enough. Um, his slugging is is definitely up on his career average, and his walks are slightly up, but that's it. Gotcha. So I have yeah. one more um, DFS uh, value talking point for us to do, and then, I don't know, we'll talk about whatever. Um, but Aiden talks a lot when we discuss DFS about ownership of players um, and how you want to be contrarian. I mean, it's always good in any sort of tournament, contest, whatever, March Madness, I don't know, survivor pools, whatever thing you're gambling on, to be contrarian because your pick, if it's – if it's made by less people and it does well, it's going to net you more value. I think it's like just a generally obvious concept. But one thing I've noticed lately or just sort of realized is that the number of games on the fantasy slate has a huge impact on how you should view ownership percentages. So when there's 15 games to choose from, it doesn't really matter what the ownership of the players is because there's just so many games that everyone's going to be spread out enough where you don't want to just take someone because no one's using them. Um, having a hitter that 10% of the field has or having a hitter that 5% of the field has, it's not really a meaningful difference. Um, but when you have when you have slates where there's only like two to four games or something, then ownership becomes everything. So I think most people kind of just view going contrarian the same in all situations. But like for me, I've really tried to differentiate when I even consider ownership percentages because on 15-game slates, like I won't even look at it. Um, it just doesn't matter, except for maybe pitchers like Clayton Kershaw's going – in a game, um, 50% of people may have him. And if it was a smaller slate, it could be like 90%. But Kershaw's good enough that I wouldn't care anyway. But for for hitters, um, like there's just no way that a lot of people are going to have any one guy if there's 15 games. So 
like I I don't know I just it's just something I struggle with like how to how to weigh that um, from an expected value point of view like how much does going contrarian really increase your expected value yeah I mean kind of like you mentioned I think it really depends on the size of the game I usually will do a lot smaller games that's why I like to get or at least focus more on the percentages because with only four to six different lineups, it's, you know, the obvious guys are, the chalky guys are pretty obvious and everyone's going to have them. So if you're playing a tournament, you can't just pick the same eight hitters and expect it to stand out from the pack. So it's just about finding that one or two value picks that are going to be 20, 30% owned in the small games. Whereas, yeah, like you mentioned, if I'm playing on a 15-game slate, I don't really care about it very much. So I'll give one more example before I let Ben weigh in. So to the day we're recording this, there was a two-game slate in the afternoon. And I guess the way that you could maneuver that is you could go contrarian for both games and just use the two lesser-used offenses for both for both of the baseball games. Um, so it was Mariners versus Phillies and Rockies versus Giants. Obviously, the Rockies and Mariners were going to have all the ownership because the Phillies are much worse than the Mariners. And even though the Rockies and Giants are probably equivalent teams, everyone loves the Rockies. Um, so to me, it makes sense to kind of use the chalk if it's a good spot for one game and go go contrarian in the other. Because going, like doubling up on contrarian picks just isn't necessary. Like there's no reason to be that against the grain. Um, ben, Ben's got some fireworks happening. That's, that's cool. <laughs> Um, so Aiden, can you see that message also, or you just hear it? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Ben's, Ben says there's, Ben's got some explosions going on there. Uh, anyway, so I think the thing to look for on small slates is where you have a game that's even, but everyone prefers one side. So the Rockies giants game was a matchup between Kyle Freeland and Ty block who are like the same pitcher and (laughs) the Rockies and giants are the same offenses pretty much. Um, the Giants probably would be better, but Buster Posey wasn't playing, so pretty equivalent. And then home field for the Giants, like it, it was pretty clear the Giants had an advantage in the game. But everyone's on the Rockies because everyone loves the Rockies, so it, it seemed like a really easy slate to go contrarian while also making the good value pick. Like the Giants were probably a better choice than the Rockies, just in terms of their raw expected output and less people were going to have them. So I think like. When you find opportunities like that, it makes sense that that's where you want to maximize your entries. And when there aren't opportunities like that, like there's just some days where it just makes sense not to play at all. Like for the people that do this every day, you really want to put in more money or whatever, just play versus not play when you see opportunities like that. And I think if you can have a feel for like which team people like, that that's a huge advantage. So I don't know. That continues to be the Rockies, although I don't know if it will anymore after they've lost ten of eleven games. I definitely agree with like in the scenario that you just threw out, where you have a relatively even what should be a relatively even, and I think like this is the same of pretty much anything, um, a relatively even matchup where all of the, I guess, hype is on one side, um, all the volume is on that one side, and you would want to go on the opposite side. Um, to get, like, a bit, like, overly mathematical, I think that, like, I think the orthogonality question of, like, how different do you want to be is 
the hardest part of trying to like algorithmically solve the DraftKings problem. Um, figuring out like what is the best overall lineup is like algorithmically wouldn't be that hard. If you have some sort of projection, um, like, like a, something like a saber sim system that'll say like for a given player, this is the expected point value for the day. Um, you know, the cost and then, then it's just optimizing along a constraint, right? You're maximizing points in a constraint of the type of roster you have to have and these are the costs for the players. And this is the total cost you can that you can go forward with. And that's not that mathematically diff- difficult. Like the projection system is uh, to, to make a good one, but like given that like the lineup selection is not a difficult problem. Where it becomes really difficult is like if you're going to enter multiple lineups or if you're, you know, if if you're going to take in as an input, like how often certain players are played in in um, in the tournament, that's where it gets like really, really mathematically difficult. And I would be fascinated to see like how people systematically attack it. I think like in terms of the intuition, I think Matt's one hundred percent right. Um, and like all things being equal, that's you should go more towards the less popular. But it's really hard to figure out like how you would do that systematically. Yeah, this was just like a really obvious example for me, but it's usually much more complex than that. Um, I think when you have like the giant slates where every team's playing you have fifteen games, the the algorithm that just tells you the net the average output output for all the players and you just sort of build the best players, um, that that probably makes a, a good amount of sense in those scenarios. Although with with the way it's structured where you have to beat 80% of the field to profit and just the way baseball is inherently where the players' numbers are correlated, unlike most other sports, um, mm-hmm. then it, it sort of makes sense to ignore the ignore like the team, the roster that's going to give you the highest expected points on average and go for a lineup where you have several players in the same lineup because that's going to give you the, the highest overall upside. Like three guys on base, one guy homers, and then they all score a run. It's like they there's a pretty obvious correlation in baseball within a lineup. So I think you get a good understanding of what players to use um, when you do that for a large slate. But for for a small slate where you have like two, three, or four games, it's almost irrelevant what the best players to use are. And then the game theory question is like the only thing to, um, to really consider. Like it becomes all about game theory there. And, um, I think that the people who are the professional players, they, I think that the lineups they build are, are these algorithms that are, that are meant for the large slates where they're just trying to find the players with the best spots. They probably use whatever, whatever saber metrics, whatever advanced statistics to uh, come up with players that just have really good matchups against pitchers and can have big games. But I think that they probably don't consider expected ownership that much. So if you're good at that, I think that that's an extra boost. And if you're not like a crazy math person, you can actually sort of give yourself an edge just by having good game theory instincts rather than being able to put these fancy algorithms together. Yeah. And I think you touched on a point that I omitted, um, which is that there is a dependence amongst each team, right? Like, like within a team, there's dependence amongst the players. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, I mean, that was what we were talking about with stacking uh, the system I described where you just take expected point values. Now I don't know 
anything really at all about Saberson. Maybe they do like consider the dependencies there. Um, but like that would, that would definitely be amplified in a smaller slate. Right. Um, I know Saberson considers the batting order. So that sort of would have some of that built in, like a guy batting second in front of Josh Donaldson is better than a guy batting second in front of Yunel Escobar. But Mm -hmm. other than that, I think that they don't consider it too much. Right. And then in compiling your actual lineup where you're just trying to maximize points, all your, like the process I described is not going to say like, well, in the case that Aaron judge has 15 points, like it's, it's, also likely that Starling Castro has to, like you know more than is expected, and yeah, there's definitely like an arbitrage to be had if you do that right, especially with a smaller slate. Yeah, I'll I'll ask this. Um, this is probably something that Aiden and I don't consider, but if there's a if there's a type of team where you have singles hitters and guys who walk a lot paired with power hitters, that would seem to work better than a team full of just power hitters. And I think that's probably true for real baseball also. Like, um, I don't know who would, who would you guys say is the most efficient offense in terms of having like a good lineup match where like the players, all their skills fit together. Or do you think that, that question is just irrelevant? Cause that doesn't really matter. Uh, so I have a few thoughts on that. Um, okay. One is that like, it's different to optimize the, the total runs for the team versus like the runs for the players. Like if you have like singles on base, heavy guys hitting one through three in the Yankees lineup and Aaron judge fourth, like obviously you're optimizing for Aaron judge. Um, and like his expected RBI totals are going to be a lot higher. Um, but I would actually counter the kind of conventional wisdom that like, having a balance of on base and power is optimal for a team. Uh, they actually, like, there was a really good Fangraphs article from two years ago. It was when Aiden and I were living together in Connecticut, and um, <laughs> the Mariners traded for Mark Trumbo. And <laughs> Sad face from Aiden on the screen now. <laughs> and um, Aiden was really pissed. <laughs> it was the most predictable Mariners move that really could have ever happened under, like, Jackson's leadership. But... Um, I, to get to my point, there was an article the next day on Fangraphs that basically ran a simulator of lineups given balances of of on base and power, um, and came out that like it was optimal to have like, a lot of like if you're on base heavy, add a more on base heavy player. If you're slugging heavy, add a more like slugging heavy player. Um, WRC plus like held constant hmm. and I thought that was super interesting because I would not have thought that like just intuitively but the simulations bore out otherwise do you know what the reason would be to have for it to be good to have the same type of hitter all throughout your lineup is there is there any sort of explanation for why that works I mean I think the general gist of it was just that logically at the time, the Mariners lineup was all dingers or swingers. You know, it was, you're going to hit home run, or they're going to strike out. And so adding one high on base guy to the lineup isn't going to make that big of a difference because most of the guys still have in 76% chance of getting out. 
whereas it will have more of an impact when he's surrounded by other high on base guys because they'll kind of stack together. And the Mariners' kind of game plan was to hit two dingers throughout the game, and chances are if that guy walks once in the game, he's not going to be on base when someone hits a home run. Right, so you're sort of shitting on the, the few bloops and a blast concept that like Hawk Harrelson and people like that love to talk about? It, I mean, it's, just, it's kind of just like a, you know, it's kind of just a sequencing thing. It makes sense, I mean, yeah, though. the probability of that happening is so small. I mean, like, even yeah. a good that has a 30% chance of, or, you know, if we want to just say on base, not even hits, um, like, a really good hitter that has a 40% chance of getting on base, like, the probability that that happens and that the hitter behind him hits a home run, which for a really good home run hitter is like 5% of plate appearances. So small. Like, mm. like I think, I think the reason this, and I don't want to like, first of all, all, all the listeners who are curious should just Google Fangraphs Mark Trumbo, um, like adding power and you'll probably find the article pretty easily. Um, it's from 2015, but like, just the idea that the heuristic that like on base, like you get on base in front of the home run hitters will no, like you get on base and, and the best thing that can happen is, well, the most likely thing that can happen is that another hitter gets on base behind you and you can kind of continue the cycle. But like that's a lot more likely than the guy strategically placed behind them actually hitting the home run. Right. So it's different. Like, okay. So in daily fantasy, like, Aaron Judge's upside will be increased by having singles hitters and walk guys in front of him. But for the Yankees, that doesn't – well, Aaron Judge is good at everything, so maybe he's a poor example. But let's say it's Chris Carter or something. Having a guy mm-hmm. who hits a lot of singles on and batting in front of him is good for Chris Carter, but it's not good for the Yankees is what you're saying. Yes. Yes, so exactly. There's a similar point where I think statistically the worst time to try to steal second is with a power hitter up with two outs – because the power hitter doesn't need you to advance a base. He's probably going to hit it over the fence if he does anything anyway. Like, if Adam Dunn's batting, you don't need to steal second with two outs, because well, like, there's just no use for that. I think it's sort of the same kind of thing with sequencing. For sure, for sure. And that's why, like, the Orioles never run, because, like, all their guys are basically, like, all-or-nothing hitters. So, like, nobody on the Orioles has more than... I don't want to throw like an actual number because I don't know it. But, like, there are not a lot of Orioles who have more than like five stolen base attempts mm-hmm. that they never run. So Jose Altuve should probably stop running if he's batting, if he's batting in front of Correa, like he doesn't need to. Evan Gaddis, for whatever times he's batting in front of George Springer, just like stop trying to steal bases. Gene Segura bats in front of Cano and Nelson Cruz and Kyle Seager. Just, just more Mariners. Being terrible, sorry, Aiden, but Segura should probably Mitch stop. Hanager. Yeah, and Mitch Hanager batting. Right, they, there's no reason Segura should ever steal. What is? Why does he do that? I mean, it's probably like it's situational, right? Like, I mean, just like anything else, it's dependent on the probability that it's successful. Right, like, his threshold for being safe, though, yeah, the pers- it needs Montero, to be much higher. The expected like time to second is going to be four seconds. Then yeah, run run all you want because the like probability of you getting caught is really low. Miguel Montero like, is that. Who you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Did I okay. say it to someone else? No, no, no. I just I was talking. I didn't hear you. Yeah, Miguel Montero is really That's terrible it. at throwing runners out. Uh, that was a funny story, by the way. That, that whole like Miguel Montero blames Jake Arrieta and then gets DFA'd. Like, that was, 
really funny. <laughs> the Cubs can't have that ruining their clubhouse because the Cubs are all about good uh, clubhouse bonding. That's Joe Madden's thing. You gotta have you gotta have really good team chemistry. And if Miguel Montero is gonna mess up the chemistry, he can't he can't be on the team anymore. I know this is like kind of a silly heuristic, but like you're the backup catcher. Like, like of all the people that you could put up with a like like a negative clubhouse effect from, that would be like the person you would least be able to put up with it from. Like yeah. just because you're the backup catcher, you barely ever play. Like presumably because you're the backup catcher, you're not particularly talented or meaningful to the team's overall like win percentage. Yeah, so. David Ross at least boosts uh, team chemistry, so he he's he, they can deal with him being bad as the backup catcher. They they can't handle a bad player who also is <laughs> hurting everyone's feelings. <laughs> he has no he has no use for them. Aiden is sending us a bunch of YouTube links, and I don't want to open them because then we'll we'll have to hear them. But uh, I don't know. This has been fun. I think Aiden has to leave to go sleep or something. Um, is there anything else you guys want to talk yeah, about before we work? Yeah, work. Uh, is there anything else you guys want to say? I like, uh, I like the binary code in the chat. <laughs> yeah, I was just impersonating Matt's thoughts. Were those random zeros and ones, or did you actually sequence that on purpose? <laughs> that was random. Uh, uh, Matt was having trouble. Yeah, you got, so he wanted I was like, what, what are you telling me? I'm trying to read it. <laughs> Wait, he just said the cat eats the banana. Does it make any sense? Um, does not compute... Uh, okay well uh, Uh, but I don't have anything else to add uh, other than the Mariners suck knew you were going to say that (laughs) yeah I'm happy baseball is back even though it's been back for like three months I'm just a happier person this is a good time of the year it is it is and the Stanton versus Judge, ultimately hyped home run derby. Like this is honestly one of is going to be one of the highlights of my baseball watching career. Um, well, watching yeah, we all know. like 480 foot home run after 480 foot home run at Petco Park last year was awesome. Um, seeing him hit hit them like into like whatever bar is behind left center in Miami. Um, it's going to be pretty crazy. Um, and also to see like the competition between judge and Stan, like two guys who can hit the ball, like 120 miles an hour. Yeah. They, the dinger derby is going to be great. I think they need to call that too. Cause everyone loves alliteration and home run derby is just not oh, as good of a name. Well, Ben, we know this could also just like tell good. everyone else to go home. Like, I, I don't know, maybe like Nelson Cruz, like he's down. He can um, play. Yeah. Let Nelson Cruz play Ben. Yeah, but it's like everyone else, like, you're not gonna win. Like, like those three guys hit the ball harder, and Carlos Gonzalez. I guess those four guys hit the ball harder than everyone in the league by a lot. Like, it's not really particularly close. So, just let those four just go to town. I don't need like some gritty, like I hit wall scrapers. Um, guy like wasting any of my time on that glorious night yeah we don't need logan forsyth or uh luis falbuena in the home run derby no scooter gannett <laughs> no zach cozart no no reds players no reds <laughs> no reds at all <laughs> reds aren't allowed 
<laughs> I think I wouldn't mind if Billy Hamilton was in it, though, because he would probably hit zero dingers, and that would be funny to watch. <laughs> Someone at zero would be kind of Ben Revere. Like, wouldn't it be funny if you had like the four I mentioned earlier and like Billy Hamilton, Ben Revere, uh, uh, who else has all like Gerard Dyson, although he's he's better now. Um, who else has like terrible power, like just terrible? Um, mm, it's, I, there aren't that many guys. You can't really be in the majors anymore. You don't have power, but it just makes it that more much more. It makes it that much more fun to make fun of Ben Revere, who just can't hit it out of the infield. <laughs> Except when Aiden bets twenty dollars that he's not going to. It's the one dinger that he needs to win a bet. <laughs> ben Revere can only hit a dinger when Aiden bets that he won't. Well, Aiden's getting his revenge this year with. With Ben Revere having a 41 WRC plus, but he's so not going to profit off. off of it. So he does have a dinger this year. Yep. Well, good for him. He's projected to hit one more over the rest of the year. Is he taking advantage of the fly ball revolution as well? <laughs> I hope. Doesn't, doesn't seem like it. Um, minimum 200 plate appearances this year. There's one guy with zero dingers. Uh, and it's not someone we've mentioned. Oh uh, man! This will be our final trivia question. I like it, Aiden. That's a good, this good ending good, point. Closer. Um, give me a sec to think about this. Zero dingers. Two hundred minimum play appearances. Mm. Yep. Give us a hint. Position. That, give, give, that, me, give me a no. Give me a division. I'll just. I'll tell you. He's an up the middle player. <laughs> All right. That's Pretty four. <laughs> that's four positions. Okay. I would hope if he was like a third baseman. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good hint at all. <laughs> it's a terrible it's like hint. Top. Okay, up the middle. Oh my gosh, I don't even have like... NL East. NL East, okay. Up the middle, NL East. Uh... Is it Wilmer Defoe? Is it is it D. Gordon? It is D. Gordon. Ah. <laughs> good, nice, Let- man. Ben wins. And the audio of Ben's celebration just cut out. I wanted to hear more of that. Can you yell again? (laughs) It just won't feel the same if it's not authentic. Uh, It's just not good value. Well, I got to watch it anyway. (laughs) Well, tell the listeners to envision me celebrating my uh, trivia victory. It looked like a loud scream. I mean, it's kind of late here. I try to respect the neighbors, but... I don't know. Maybe it's louder than it should have been. Mm, you're a good citizen. All right. Uh, I try. Aiden is leaving. Okay. Yeah. It's been a good time, so, Aiden. Good and Ben. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for it talking some baseball. It's a privilege. Good sign off. Good luck with your daily fantasy. <laughs> All right. I'm going to stop recording now.